Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast here at Fortress of the Mind. In this podcast, we'll discuss a question that I received yesterday by email from a reader. And cutting through the gist of the question, it really revolves around to the the eternal question of nature versus nurture. Nature versus nurture. And what this young man is asking is he sees around him a lot of dysfunctional family members. He sees around him people that he does not want to emulate. And I think he has a deep-seated fear, which a lot of young guys do, about the formation of his own identity. And I think he's afraid that he might evolve into what he sees around him, people that he does not admire, whom he does not respect. And so his question to me was, nature versus nurture, is a man more influenced in his formative stages by nature, in other words, by his inherent genetic inheritance, Or is he more subject to environment, to nurture, to the influences that he can bring to bear himself in the formation of his own unique identity? And this is the question. This is a very good question. And, you know, this is, of course, one of those questions that we can go back and forth and back and forth. Because the true answer really is both. A man is influenced both by nature and nurture. But if I had to make a choice, if we survey the lives of the great men of history, we would have to say that nurture, that environment, is more influential. Because a man, to some extent, can create his own identity. He can define himself for himself. He can state who he wants to be. He can become whom he wants to be by force of will, by application of certain disciplines and rules and practices and behaviors. He can do all these things. And so if we had to make a choice, if we had to actually decide what is more important, nature or nurture, the answer always has to be nurture. Because if it were otherwise, then we're essentially condemning ourselves to a life of permanent servitude to our heredity. And I'm not prepared to go that far. And I don't think reality bears out the fact that heredity is the decider of everything. Every man, to some extent, to a great extent, can shape his own destiny. Fortune always has the final say, maybe. But a man can influence the outcome of fortune. He can direct it this way and that, like an engineer trying to plot the course of a river with embankments and dams, and channels. He can guide destiny. He can make destiny his own. And this is what we have to do as men. This is what we should always be seeking to do. We have to try to make fortune turn in our favor. You know, Sallust says, well, the phrase he uses, fortunam ad vortere, to turn fortune, to turn fortune, to, to flip it, to guide it, this way or that, this way or that. So I'm always going to say that nurture is more important because I truly believe that to be the case. I truly believe that to be so. And I think really the subtext of this guy's question is, uh, 
it's there's a fear lurking in the background. And again, I can always detect the subtexts of questions. You can never bullshit me. You can never, ever bullshit me. I always know. I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again. I can always tell. I can always tell. Every word, every letter that's typed on my screen has significance, has some meaning, and I can feel it. I can sense it. So if you have a question for me, I'm going to know what the subtext of the question is. So you can you can put out any pretext you want of what you, what you think the question is, but the real question, I'll always be able to divine it. And the real question that this guy has is, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question born of fear. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he's afraid that he won't be able to ever become anything different than what he sees around him. He's afraid that he's going to be trapped in his cultural milieu. He's afraid that he's going to become like the dorks that he sees around him. And this is actually a very, very healthy and normal fear. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should use that fear. That fear should always be nipping at your heels. Fear is good in many ways. Fear of failure. Fear of being a dork. Fear of being a loser. More people need to be fear. Filled with fear. I don't subscribe to that belief where you should just chill out and everything's fine. and Bullshit. Bullshit. You need to know that you have a shoe up your ass or that you're going to have one if you're going to achieve anything in this world. Nothing good in this world was ever achieved by feeling complacent, by feeling relaxed, by feeling calm, by feeling sedate. Bullshit. You can feel sedate when you come home from work and you're relaxing in front of the television with a glass of bourbon. That's the time to feel relaxed. In the meantime, get to work. Get your ass to work. That's my message. So it's normal for all of us, for all men. And I was the same way. I was the same way when I was growing up. I was like, my God, I don't want to be like these other people around me. I, I want to be different. I, I, I want to be, I want to achieve my own identity. I want to achieve my own individuality. And as long as I'm always in the orbit of these other people, I'm never going to be able to do that. I'm never going to be able to do that. And so this is why it's so important for every man to strike out on his own, to go off and do his own things. Even if he fails miserably, he will still have learned far more and be, in my eyes, a far greater man than those who follow the well-trodden path of comfort, of ease, of what's safe. For those people, I have no patience, none at all. And you know... Let me tell you a story. I'm watching a very, very good series right now on Netflix. You know, I need to watch Netflix a lot because I do a lot of movie reviews. You guys know that I like movies. I like to talk, film, and discuss what it means. I find that very interesting. I, I enjoy doing that. And so I was watching on Netflix this series that's been critically acclaimed for very good for a very, very good reason. It's called Chef's Table. And... I'm not even a, I'm not a chef. I'm well, I mean I I guess every single man is by necessity a chef to some degree, but I'm not exactly a, a, a aficionado of fine cuisine. But I really enjoy this series, Chef's Table. 
And I'll tell you why I enjoy it. Because each what it is, it's a collection of stories about some of the greatest chefs in the world. And how they got to be where they are. How they overcame their triumph, how they overcame their challenges, how they achieved their triumphs. And when you're a chef at this level of the game, you literally are almost an, an artist. These, these people are beyond just chefs. These are truly artists. I mean, some of these guys, some of these chefs are, are, are really out there. You know, they're plating food that is something out of a modern art museum. I mean, it's not the type of thing that I would, you know, it's, it's not really something that's uh, uh, really something that I would really indulge in. But I respect the fact that they're, they're masters of their craft. I love painstaking craftsmanship but what i really like about the series more than anything it's 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 a collection of inspirational stories about how these chefs became who they are and i noticed something that they all had in common all of them started out as apprentices and in various different places and they all became great once they made this final decision in their minds that they were going to go out and do their own thing. As long as they tried to imitate other people, as long as they tried to imitate the cooking or the cuisine of someone else, they were, they were always good. They were still good, but they were never quite great. And you see this pattern over and over and over again. You know, there is one, there's one uh, story. Uh, this uh, is a, a master chef in, um, in Argentina. His name was... Um, Francis Malman. Francis Malman, very interesting guy, and he's a master of this uh, this type of cuisine where they cook on the, uh, you know, pit cooking, bar, out, outdoor barbecuing and cooking, and all the very very avant garde, uh, Patagonian stuff, Patagonian cuisine, which I know very little about, but it looked it looked fantastic, and he he was trained as a French chef. He went to Paris to study. And he related an incident where he talked about he had to cook a French meal for the Cartier family, the, the, the jeweler's Cartier. And, you know, he, he really worked himself to the bone to get this meal prepared. And once it was over, the, the head of the family there, the, the Cartier uh, patriarch or whoever it was, he took him aside and he said, you know what, that, I just want, you seem like a nice person, but I just wanted you to know that that meal was not very good. You know, that meal was just uh, a pale imitation of French cuisine. I mean, can you imagine this? First of all, I think it's just uh, says a lot about the type of person that, I mean, who would do that? And this guy was crushed. You know, Malman was, he says, you know, I was, I was devastated. But then, you know, he thought about it some more and they said, you know what, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe I've been not true to myself. Maybe I've been trying to imitate other people and not do my own thing. Maybe I have been too much trying to copy what other people are doing rather than releasing what's inside of me. And the same story came up with another chef. Another This, this guy's an Australian guy. And he does all this fancy cooking with unique Australian ingredients and all these exotic um, you know, fr- fruits and vegetables and uh, food from the sea that nobody else knows how to do. And he figured he figured it all out on his own. And he did it once he got to a point where he just got tired of trying to copy other people. 
And this is really what it takes to succeed. You've, you've got to get to the point where you're just tired of everybody else's bullshit. You're tired of dealing and listening to every, everybody else's bullshit. You don't want to deal with it anymore. And you finally have the courage to go off and do your own thing. And it's not easy. It takes risk. It takes real fortitude to do that because you could fail. And some of these guys failed. Some of their first restaurants were failures. But they kept at it. And this is really what it takes to succeed, to really become the best at what you do, or to achieve distinction in some field. You have to take your love for that subject matter and create something new. You have to take what's out there, what's already there out there in the in the world and create something new with it. You know, there's a, a chef, a, a Swedish guy. His name is Magnus something. I can't remember what his last name is, but very interesting guy. And this guy started one of the greatest restaurants in the world in the middle of nowhere. This is a restaurant that's in Sweden. It's not in Stockholm. It's not in some major city. It's literally on some frozen road through the forest, some on some obscure town in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, Sweden is... Uh, has a lot of empty space in it. It's a cold country. You know, we forget that um, a lot of the central and northern part of it is just is a lot like, um, you know, mountainous uh, lakes and rivers and forests. It's a it's a you know, it's it's a cold place. And this chef found a way to defy all the odds and all the expectations and to totally go against the rule book. And he still was successful. He still was successful. Because he had a passion for what he did, because he was willing to experiment, he was willing to take chances, he was willing to cut out on his own, cut loose, cut the tether that tethered his balloon to the earth and float freely in the atmosphere. And this is what enables you to become truly great, is when you stop imitating other people and release the creativity within you. This is what we have to do. This is what we have to Keep in mind. And all of these chefs had this same quality. And there was one that I saw tonight, really, very, really, very, very poignant. And this is a chef who's in uh, Chicago. I don't, I forget what his name is. But this is a guy who was truly one of these avant-garde chefs. I mean, really out there. I'm talking just like, you know, exotic, beyond exotic. And uh, he found out suddenly and without warning that he had cancer and he was given like three months to live his doctors told him he had three months to live unless he did a certain operation well he wasn't willing to do the operation and he found some alternative therapy through another type of chemotherapy that enabled him to uh, survive without without uh, without surgery but he temporarily lost his taste buds and can you imagine that for a chef to lose his taste buds it's almost like Beethoven losing his hearing or a sculptor losing his eyesight. I mean, that's the, the essential sense that the man needs to do his, his, his profession. And it was a very inspiring, very, very inspiring episode. And, and I wish I could explain it in all of its details, but you have to see it for yourself. And the lesson there is you've got to be constantly creating, constantly creating. You have got to be constantly creating and doing your own thing. And it's just when you think that you're 
comfortable and happy and and placated and lulled into a sense of security, that's when you most need to shake yourself up and do something, take off on some new direction, creative-wise. And this is what will enable you to continue to perform at an optimal level all, th- all throughout your life. We don't just have one life, as the French romantic writer Chateaubriand said, and I've written about him in the past, great writer. We have multiple lives laid end on end to each other. And this is what we need to constantly keep in mind, what we need to constantly be mindful of. So that's what I want to say about that. I'm going to now read for you the epilogue to my book 37. It's the first book that I published back in 2014. And um, I got a very positive response from the previous reading that I made of T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men. But I wanted to read this epilogue to my book 37 because I want you to think about it and I want you to reflect on it. As you go about your life, as you go about your business, wherever you happen to listen to these podcasts, I want you to think about it. So I'm going to do that now. This is the epilogue to 37. In the summer of 2014, I visited a small used bookstore near the downtown of a large city in the American Midwest. Not finding anything to my liking, I finally saw an overlooked stack piled near the store's exit. The owner had just dumped them there, not bothering to sort and shelve them. In it were two volumes that caught my attention. One was Joseph Conrad's Youth, a Narrative, and Other Stories. And the other was D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love. I had never heard of the stories in the Conrad title except Heart of Darkness, and there was something about the book itself that made me pause. It was old and yet solidly made. It had been printed in 1959, and the former owner had given its stiff paperback cover a translucent plastic covering that was now a distinguished yellow. There was an elegant photograph of Conrad on the front cover. Women in Love I had hoped to read for some time, but had always found an excuse to put it off. Each book was one dollar. Youth a Narrative was a story that made an impression on me. Five old veterans of the merchant service are sitting around a table and telling sea stories. One of the men, named Marlowe, describes his first voyage to the eastern waters of the world about twenty years earlier. A ship sets out from England to Thailand to deliver a load of coal. The vessel is captained by a man in his first command at sea. Passing through the North Sea, the ship is caught in a serious gale which nearly capsizes her and she is forced to return to port for an extensive refitting. The narrator notices that rats desert the ship, and seamen, being a suspicious bunch, interpret this as a bad omen. A new crew must be found in Liverpool. The ship, named Judea, finally gets underway and makes progress across the globe, but disaster hits again near Australia. In the heat of the tropics, the cargo of coal catches fire, and the crew are unable to douse it. 
Flammable gases in the hold ignite, causing a tremendous explosion, and Marlowe is nearly killed in the ensuing chaos. The crew encounter another ship, named the Somerville, and arrange for the Judea to be towed into the nearest port in Batavia. But even this goes wrong, as the movement of the ship fans the smoldering coals once again, and the ship takes light. Nothing is to be done except to salvage the remaining gear from the Judea. The captain has decided to abandon the burned-out vessel and divide the crew into three smaller boats, one of which Marlow commands. The crew eventually make it safely to Java and find their way back to England by steamship, and here Conrad concludes the tale. To anyone who has first experienced the Far East as a young man, this story may resonate. It did with me. It is a mood piece, and the mood is the celebration of youth, or, more particularly, the celebration of youth crossed by danger in the East. Near the end of his tale, Conrad has Marlowe say, I have seen the mysterious shores, the still water, the lands of brown nations, where a stealthy nemesis lies in wait, pursues, overtakes, so man of the conquering race who are proud of their wisdom, of their knowledge, of their strength. But for me, all the wisdom of the East is contained in that vision of my youth. It is all in that moment when I opened my young eyes on it. I came upon it from a tussle with the sea, and I was young, and I saw it looking at me. And this is all that is left of it. Only a moment, a moment of strength, of romance, of glamour, of youth. There is something inexplicably profound in encountering physical hardship and foreign travel as a young man. Those formative trials stay with us, bubbling beneath the surface of our skins, giving us the seasoned complexion that we wear for years thereafter. How we flung ourselves into the cauldrons of fate, We are the sum total of our experiences, and yet those of our youth seem to stand out in sharper focus when we trace the receding lines of memory in a backward trajectory. The travel, the east, and the danger of those years fuse into one shining ingot, one shining alloy of remembrance. Gone from memory are the unhappy hours we spent in toil and tedium, the hours of hardship and cruelty. There remains only the taste of youth's innocent joys, the harassments of happy sleeplessness, the taste of dangerous salt spray about our faces, and the bonds of comradeship. Memory is the ultimate redeemer. <laughs>